Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. Today, I'm speaking to Pamela Paul, who's an opinion columnist for The New York Times. She was an editor or the editor of The New York Times book review for nine years and the author of eight books, including 100 Things We Lost to the Internet. Pamela, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Pamela, I loved this piece you wrote which was titled, It's Not the Kids with the Cell Phone Problem, It's the Parents, or It's Not Kids with the Cell Phone Problem, It's the Parents. You must have gotten an interesting response from people in your life when you wrote this piece. Yeah, I mean, we like to blame everything internet on our kids, and um, it's very convenient. Um, I have three kids. But the truth is, we, the parents, are generally, almost universally, the ones who are paying for the phones, if not the phone itself, then certainly the monthly bills. And we are also the parents, full stop. So we are the ones who create the rules for our kids. And it, I think, lets parents a little bit off the hook to say like, oh, my kids won't get off their phones. I can't take it away from them. They're using it during the dinner, uh, you know, at the dinner table. Um, they're addicted. It's our phone, really. We're the ones that provide that service. And so it is on us to set up the rules. So that's number one. And the second thing is when your kids are at school or away, every time you text them, you ask them a question as a parent, that's a convenience for you. It's a convenience for the parent to know where is my child right now? um, What are they doing? And so I do think parents often don't acknowledge. And again, I here I'm putting myself in the, the guilty party, among the guilty party, because I too am a parent, so I'm not just pointing fingers. But we like knowing where our kids are, right? But I do think there are downsides to the way parents use phones. And you didn't allow your kids to have cell phones until high school, which it on the face of it, there was an era in which this wouldn't be controversial at all. Right now, that that's like, to a lot of parents would seem extreme. I'm not a parent. Yes, yeah, I know. I'm like, it's it's like uh, the equivalent of, you know, having your baby sleep in your bed until they're four years right. old or something. <laughs> like it's like some kind of turbo strange parenting to do that. One of the things I tried to do in my book, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet, is not to so much talk about like the way things are now, but to talk about what it was like before. And when we think about what it was like before cell phones, I think that the idea of not giving your kid a phone until high school feels less strange. So if you remember, if you can go way back, so I'm, I'm an oldster and I went to high school in the 80s. And at that time, the idea of my parents trying to reach me at any time during the school day was insane, repellent, ridiculous. Like there was just, there was no way. I mean, if you got called out of class because your mom was on the phone, everyone would assume that, you know, someone was dead in a street. Exactly. Something brutal and awful had happened. There was never a reason to contact your child during the day. And, and you know, I lived with my uh, mother most of the time and she worked full time. There's no conceivable chance she would have ever called me out of school. There was nothing that couldn't possibly wait until she came home uh, from work at the end of the day. And if you think about it, you would have been called to the principal's office, you know, pick up a landline. And the people who run the phones at the school 
certainly didn't have time to answer a million calls like, oh my God, you forgot your you know chemistry notebook at home. Do you want to come back and get it, sweetie? Or don't you have cello today? Like I'll drop off your instrument. They don't have the time for all those little details. And yet somehow all of us managed to graduate from elementary school, middle school, and high school without that constant communication. So I think it feels less weird when you think about the fact that you can never have reached your child during the school day. And you talk about the 80s. I was born in the 80s. I went to high school in the late 90s. There was no material difference there, even though we had pagers and eventually cell phones, I think probably by the time I graduated. But it wasn't like a dominant force in our lives in school at all. You didn't see them around. Right. And, you know, the other interesting reason that parents will give to, you know, for giving their child a phone, let's say in sixth grade or fifth grade or seventh grade, they'll say, well, my child is going to school on her own and I'm a little nervous about her crossing the streets. Like, what if something happened to her? What if she got in an accident? What if she needed me? Like, what if, heaven forbid, like, you know, she got kidnapped or... And that kind of thinking is a kind of faulty magical thinking, right? Because if your child gets run over by a car, they're not going to be like, wait, you know, as they're expiring on the the sidewalk, like I need to call my mom and let her know to call the ambulance. Like that's not going to happen. And we all know that if a child, you know, again, worst case scenario is abducted or something like that, the perpetrator will know that the first thing you do is, you know, turn off the phone, throw it in the woods, disable it. Like, that's not going to save your child. So there's that. And then there's also that element of like, wait, what did we used to do before? Well, I don't know about you, Ravi, but like when I was growing up, starting in second grade, I walked to school by myself and it was crossing streets. It was learning to navigate it by myself. My brothers didn't want to walk with me, so I was alone. And somehow at the age of seven and eight years old, I lived. Yeah, I I walked to school myself and I and I live in New York City. And the I walked in school, elementary school, late elementary school and middle school. And I took the city bus to high school. And what's interesting is I was a school principal uh, for a charter school network in Nashville in the early 2010s, so like 2011 to 2016-ish, uh, I was the school principal and superintendent eventually. And interestingly, I mean, the later years started to get harder, but we had a no cell phones in the classroom policy, uh, and we had different ways of implementing it. But even then, like especially you talk about 2011, 2012, it wasn't that controversial. Like, yes, there were issues, but you know, I would start the year by saying to parents, you know, and it helps that there's schools of choice, right? Because the parent could come in and say, look, it's, it's a basically, you can give the speech, look, this may not be for you. And if you really care about your kid being wired all day, this may not be the right school for you. But I would say, look, you're, here's our policy. The kid can walk through the door of the school building with the cell phone, but, and we had different ways of handling it at different points. Either they put it in a Ziploc bag and put it in the back of the room. We used to have like these little like, locked boxes that the teacher at homeroom would collect everything, all the cell phones, put them all in one box. And then at the end of the day, they would give them back to the students, right? Um, we had a policy like that. And then we would have a pretty zero tolerance policy about it, where essentially, if you're caught with the cell phone, we grab it, the parent has to come up and get it from us uh, with a cascading series of consequences. And you, people would think that this would be like, super controversial. It really wasn't. Like the parents were fine with it. And 
I imagine today, if I tried to do that, it would be way harder. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's what's interesting. It's the parents who often push back because it's really, really convenient to let your child have a phone. I have to admit, like, I knew that a phone wasn't good for my kids. And um, again, people might differ on this, but I had looked at the data on the effects of social media, but not just social media, screens and attentiveness and focus and your real life interactions versus your online interactions. And I made the decision like this makes sense. That said, it is really convenient to be able to reach your child. And for a full-time working parent, for, for families in which there are two full-time working parents, it sometimes is a hassle not to be able to get in touch with your kid. And one of the, again, checks on reality is if your child doesn't have a cell phone, you think, well, can I call the school office with this like little request or reason why I need to get through to my child? And you realize, no, that would be insane and ridiculous for me to call my you know, the school office to say, hey, could you tell my son that if it's raining, I still might not be able to pick him up because I have to, you know, my doctor appointment. It's crazy. You would never do that. It would be so intrusive. Um, that said, it is really convenient. And so schools that have tried to push back on their cell phone access for kids and, and during the school day often face pushback from the parents. It's the parents who are inconvenienced by not having their kids on phones during the day. You talk about the little lies that we tell about this, and you alluded to some of them already, but let's go through these. Like, so what, like, let's give the justifications and, and, and your impression of these justifications. And to be clear, like, a lot of these things are, it's like, it's not that they're like totally wrong. It's just that it's a matter of weighing the pros and cons. And I think like in certain cases, one sort of little lie you talk about, for example, is the sense of like school shootings and things like that. Um, but you you seem to suggest that in a lot of cases, the presence of cell phones is not arguably helpful in a situation like that. Yes. And I'm not the expert because I'm not, um, you know, a law enforcement, but people who have studied those situations have said, you know, as much as we hear about the, you know, kids in Parkland or elsewhere calling texting locations to their parents, you know, saying goodbye, being in touch, letting them know they're okay, they can also be a potential for danger for the very reasons why they might also help, which is that they're a distraction. And so if you are in a life-threatening situation and you are on your phone, you are by nature, obviously, not paying attention to everything that's going on around you. Phones can also go off unexpectedly and alert a live shooter to your location. And so it seems counterintuitive, but when you think about it, right, whenever we're paying attention to our phone, we are, by definition, not paying attention to what's going on around us. You know, and another one of the lies we tell each ourselves, and this is a really tricky one because it's it really does make sense, the lie, <laughs> until you think about it hard, which is we think that our kids will be uh, more independent if they have a phone, right? Because they could go anywhere at any time, always be able to reach you. Um, they could call an Uber or a Lyft. They can, you know, get in touch uh, with uh, someone in case of emergency. There's an emergency call function. The truth is that a cell phone is actually a permanent kind of umbilical cord tethering the child to the parent, right? If you have a find your phone app or location device 
uh, on your phone, then you're telling your child, I always know where you are, therefore you're okay. And that really isn't true independence, right? True independence would be letting your child leave without a phone and trusting the child, right? To be responsible enough to get to school without you having to second guess them. And that I would say is what I found as a parent, one of the hardest things, because my kids did go to school by bike um, and uh, foot on their own without a phone for years before they got them. And that's nerve wracking, right? Because we're all, you know, nervous, worried parents who think like, what if my kid gets hit by a car? And I just had to let go of that fear because that's my fear, right? And if I'd articulated my fear to my kids, they would have thought like, that's ridiculous, mom. Like, don't worry. Don't be such a nervous wreck. Like, come on, I can handle myself. That's the important message that your child should have, not the I'm watching you at all times and know where you are message. And I think it's really important for kids to internalize the message that my parents trust me to be able to get to where I'm going without uh, and, and knowing what to do with myself in a case of emergency without double checking. Yeah. And I think the school shooting example is is a great one because there is, I think we're, we're taking like, an, um, there are obviously school shootings are way too common, but I think we extrapolate from the incidents that happen to create a general rule that affects all children, right? Like what people are arguing is, okay, in this circumstance, which as you described, it's not even a clear cut case that the cell phone is helpful, right? But let's stipulate that on the margins, the cell phone is more helpful than not, right? That's not the end of the conversation, right? Like it, it, on, on balance, if I walked around with a helmet on New York City, I'd be safer. Now I, I don't because it's it's not worth the cost right? We also could say a kid is quote unquote safer if they're homeschooled and not going to school because then they're less likely to be involved in a school shooting. Now, of course, we would balance all the other benefits of being in school against the risk of being in that school building. In this case, we need to talk about the cost of having that cell phone and how that impacts everything else in your life. And as you've pointed out in this piece and in subsequent piece that you wrote that I think went into some of the demographic differences, the the health and well-being of the kid is actually suffering when they have that cell phone in their hand. Absolutely. And in multiple ways. And I think your point to trying to conceive of this in terms of opportunity cost or trade-off, they lose something for everything that they gain. And they lose the sense. I mean, one of the things you hear from um, college administrators is that kids today on college seem to be, you know, they have quote unquote helicopter parents. And it, it, it is a, it's a mutual dependency that goes on, right? It's both coming from the parents and coming from the college students that they need to be in constant contact, need to be checking on each other. And that's not healthy for either party. I mean, again, when I think back to my college years, that was a time when, you know, you got in touch with your parents when you wanted to, right? And they they could reach you. Um, we, I think we had a, a landline actually in our dorm room. I'm actually, I mean, the fact that I can't remember is probably indicative of the fact that I just didn't talk to my parents that much. And now college administrators will say like kids on college seem really fragile, right? They need constant reassurance. And I do think that 
this is the trade-off. There's a really lovely part of contemporary parenting, which is a kind of closeness and friendship between parent and child that I don't think existed to the same extent in many uh, cases in previous generations. Um, And so that's really lovely. But again, the downside of that is that kids are less independent, even at an age like college, where they really should be letting go. And so I think that these things that happen in college aren't occurring in a vacuum. They don't come out of nowhere. This is a consequence of of years of um, sort of sending messages to our kids and our kids absorbing those messages. Yeah, and I think from the school perspective, the the biggest BS I hear is that the the cell phone is an instructional tool. Like, and you oh, talk yeah. about this little. It's just like you're like, well, we need it for this lesson. I'm what what lesson? Uh, yeah. Tell me, because like, yes, uh, if your lesson is go out into the world, and I could imagine a lesson like this, like go out into the world and film yada 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 and edit it and turn it into whatever. Sure, and but I, I would ask the school how why they think they're uniquely qualified to do that. Kids do that on their own really well. Uh, but let's pretend that that's the lesson, right? How much of the day really is this? Uh, and like, there's there's screen time with the computers, which I think should also be limited, but is really important, obviously, because it's how so much of us do our work. It's how you and I are communicating right now. But obviously, there, you need all sorts of guardrails on that time. And a a healthy school also has times when the the computers are away during significant periods of time so the kids can socialize and they can read books and they can have conversations without staring at a screen, right? The cell phone, it is such a limited use case. Yes, yes. And, you know, and this is also where it gets into that other column that you mentioned about the differing demographics, the disparities in terms of both race, um, ethnicity uh, and uh, social class um, comes into play because the way in which kids use a cell phone, generally speaking, is quite different from the way in which they use a laptop or a desktop computer. One of the experts I spoke to, Lucia Magus-Weinberg, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Washington. She studies teenagers and tech. And she says that, you know, when you think about cell phone use, right, it's more of snorkeling, whereas computers allow for more of a scuba dive. And if you think about your own use, this makes sense, right? You, When you're on your phone, you're just kind of, you're using it to text, to do really quick things. It's annoying to have to read, like, would you ever research to prepare a podcast on your phone? Probably not. You'd wait until you could get to a desktop where you could have multiple tabs open, where you could see a full screen, where you could download PDFs and access deeper data. Whereas on the phone, like we use that for silly things, right? Phone is for standing in line, scrolling through TikTok or Facebook or Instagram. It's for quickly checking your emails and deleting any spam. We don't really, like, you know, you do read some articles and things on your cell phones. Yes, there are people who do read books, but by and large, um, a phone is used for kind of lighter internet needs. And a phone is also, you know, easily a distraction device because it's the way in which everyone is trying to reach you through all of these different, you know, communication media at any time. So you're constantly getting pings and notifications and it's distracting. And when the Pew Internet, uh, the Pew Research looked at uh, the way in which internet uh, and cell phone use in particular differed among ethnic groups, they found that um, Hispanic and Black children were using their phones to a much greater extent. And that, you know, this is a potential danger to the health and well-being. Now, some of that, of course, is 
related to class. It's about economic necessity, right? We still know that there is a digital divide in terms of kids who have access to uh, broadband at home, kids who have their own laptop or desktop at home. Sometimes the phone is all they had. And during COVID lockdown, we really saw that this exacerbated already existing inequities in terms of tech access and tech habits, because like it would be really tough to attend a class on Zoom on your phone. But that's what a lot of kids had to do because they didn't have another option. So thinking about that, the way in which we use a phone, um, it's also less substantive than what we think of as the kind of the great pluses of Internet. Yeah, and it's amazing how much the phones are penetrating schools. So Common Sense Media, and, and you quote this in one of your articles, uh, found that 97% of teen and preteen respondents said they use their phone throughout the school day for a median of 43 minutes. That's a whole class. Like 43 minutes is a class time, right? Yes, yes. And it actually, it's more than that. It really is more than that because... They're not, you know, counting the fact that, you know, they have a smart board up during the entire class. Like these kids are looking at a screen, whether it is projected on the smart board or on their desktop or laptop or phone, really fairly constantly during the school day. Yeah. And, you know, I think I think of this as the role of school should be to provide something that you're not going to get outside of the school. Right. Right. And without a doubt, kids are getting too much cell phone time outside of school. We all are, by the way. And I actually yes. think most people, if you asked yourself, can I have a way to constrain myself from cell phone use uh, throughout the day in a way that is accepted? I think most of us w- would want that, right? Like if you go on a weekend with your friends, like I think people like I do with my friends, we, we really police each other about our phones and give each other a hard time if the phones are out. If we're at dinner, uh, we put our phones away. I know a lot of families that do this, uh, like my colleague Doug Lamov has cell phones away at the dinner table. I think that's a very common thing. I think a lot of people actually check their phones in the house when they come in, right? Like you do these things. For school, you should really think long and hard about, okay, if this is a really important place for learning and socializing, becoming the person you want to be, you should, and you also want to provide something that doesn't exist outside of the school. A strong school culture and climate, strong school leaders, strong educators will want to have a theory about the use of those phones, and they should be able to keep to that, like, they should be able to stay faithful to that theory. And I think that's where people, like, fail at base, right, is they don't even have an idea of how they want that cell phone to exist within their school, and then they get bullied by parents and kids um, because they're not holding Well, and also they're getting a hard sell from the tech companies, um, which, you know, are saying, and so here's the, the dilemma, and I really get it for school administrators in particular. They're being told, you know, 21st century skills, you need to teach computers. They often have state guidelines in terms of how much they're supposed to enforce technology. Then there are the tech companies that have big contracts with schools um, to give them, for example, very low cost Chromebooks, um, which then gets the kids sort of, you know, started and habituated on Google uh, programs as opposed to, say, a competitor like Microsoft or vice versa. And they're providing all of this, not out of the goodness of their hearts necessarily, but because this is early customer acquisition and they can gather data on usage um, so that they are better informed about how to continue uh, to get 
people to use their products and to perfect those products. But again, from an educational standpoint, right, you have school administrators who many of them who didn't grow up with technology themselves and might not be adept and might not be necessarily uh the most sophisticated thinkers about what actually is good for kids in terms of technology education. But there are a few things that I keep in mind. One is um, that whatever your child learns um, in terms of computer programming, for example, which I think is actually one of the best ways in which to use um, technology in schools, they're learning to code in certain languages. It's it's like learning a new language, learning a computer language, and that's a great skill. But by the time they're in the workforce, that computer language is going to be obsolete. And now we have the added um, fact that uh, AI is probably going to take over some of the functions of those programming skills that the child learns. And that we're talking best case scenario because that's probably the most useful way in which people use technology. But Otherwise, technology has in many ways been shown to be an impediment to learning. And I think if you want to talk about experts, right, in terms of technology use among kids, then turn to the founders of all the big tech firms and social media apps. And almost, you know, universally, they don't allow their kids to use their products because they know better. I mean, one of the crazy things to me is China doesn't allow TikTok in China. Um, (laughs) It's It's only for us. So think about that. Why do they want you know, American teenagers to be sort of, you know, zoned out on TikTok all day and what messages are are kids absorbing on there certainly is something they want to keep far away from their own youth. And, um, you know, that's the same, the same is true for technology leaders, because what they know, right, is that technology, the true innovations in technology and in science aren't about learning to use what's available now. It's about learning to imagine what doesn't exist yet. And in order to learn how to imagine what doesn't yet exist, you need to become resourceful. And often that resourcefulness is happening in the real world. It's not staring at a screen. It's looking up and seeing what's going on in the world around you, seeing what's happening in neighborhoods, seeing what's happening in your world, noticing things that are going on with the environment and coming up with solutions that don't already exist. If something already exists on a website, right, and your kid is using it, that's not necessarily, that's just letting them use a new tool, right? Um, That's not creating the tool or learning how to use tools to create some new technology. Well, and you know what the most important 21st century skill is? The ability to concentrate for significant periods of time and produce excellent work. Right. right? And usually that is at odds with screen time or like managing the screen time and how to like you know, this, Steve Jobs' vision of the the personal computer was that it would be a tool of personal empowerment. And it still can be. The problem is it can also be a tool of distraction. And those two things are often at odds with each other. And there's this overselling that happens from people who are proponents of technology in the classroom. They will paint the picture of the most incredible use of the technology that probably doesn't exist in 99.9% of classrooms. Like if you go into a classroom, it is the worst possible use of the technology. And these are still kids. There's a reason why we don't allow minors to do a lot of things, right? Like they still don't have the ability, they need to be taught the ability to self-regulate and to make good decisions. And there needs to be a constant conversation. I would say one of the the things I see that schools, like a critical mistake schools make, and this is going to seem like a small thing, is they have some kind of 
system where what could be merits or deep merits or notes or whatever, where the teachers use phones to log things and communicate. So what happens is the teachers are distracted in front of the classrooms. And because also that's a window into teachers doing other things on those phones too, texting each other, checking their Instagram, whatever. I see this way more often than you can imagine. And the students, like, let's say that school, and oftentimes that school has a cell phone policy for the kids, but the, the students are not dumb. They see the teachers using those phones for more than what the teachers are claiming, and that creates a horrible climate within the school. Absolutely, so I think that's absolutely. A, that's a bad use of technology too, I think. So again, not to gang up on uh, teachers, um, because I think they have the hardest job and, you know, one of the least remunerative in terms of what uh, the importance of the job. Uh, So uh, I'm not trying to disparage them, but they're human just like the rest of us. And um, they have social media often just like the rest of us and kids who are texting them. And it's just really hard um, to unplug from all of that um, if you are, you know, no matter what you're doing. So they are um, they fall victim to those kinds of uses. Um, but the other thing and, 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 you know, kids notice this, as you said. I mean, my kids would, you know, notice which teachers were on social media all day and, and make fun of them. And again, you don't really want your kid. Look, every kid makes fun of their teachers, but you don't really want your kids disrespecting the people who are teaching them. Yeah, well, just to make a note about that, because this is a passion of mine, what you want your kid to be coming home and making fun of slash giving the teacher a hard time about is how uh, uncompromising that teacher is. That's, That's a teacher that I'm like, all right. I look back, I was just thinking about this the other day. Some of these teachers I had that I hated uh, were the best teachers and of the course. ones who affected me the most. Yeah. It's the ones who are trying to be liked often that are the most uh, disparaged. Um, and it's the ones who are the toughest who earn the respect of kids um, because kids don't want their teachers to be trying to be like kids and to try to like kids. They see right through that. And then, you know, the other paradoxical thing, I think that technology has been very good for teachers who are good at technology. And so that, you know, that is a qualification right there. Big caveat. But in terms of organizing and managing their curricula, managing grading, that it can be very useful for a teacher who is comfortable with technology. But even so, we all know that all of these systems that are supposed to make our lives easier often don't. Like if you've ever had to tangle with a human resources interface, you know that like it's not as easy to file expenses when you have to sort of itemize everything and fill out in this whole, you know, big system and uh, upload receipts. And it was easier, frankly. Um, Of course, it involved um, human beings when you just kind of had a bunch of paper receipts and, you know, tallied them up on a calculator and stapled them and handed them off. And, you know, doctors too, um, not to get into a whole other thing, but, you know, you'll often, if you're sitting with your doctor, they are not looking at you because they have a million and one screens to fill out while they're talking to you. And when you think about it, in the olden days, right, your doctor was still doing the same kind of physical exam, but they weren't looking at a screen while they were doing it. They were maybe taking notes or taking notes afterwards. And mostly they were just listening to you and looking at you. Right. Um, so 
And the same thing is true for teachers, right? They have a lot of extra work to do on screens in addition. And I don't blame them for trying to cram some of that into the little corners of the day. So yeah. when the kids are taking a test, instead of actively watching them, um, you might be, uh, as a teacher, you know, multitasking and trying to catch up on some of your digital paperwork. Right. Yeah. And actually in the medical, I think the medical situation is even harder to solve because the sheer amount of paperwork they have to do goes beyond any school. Like I was watching, oh, for this, sure. I was watching my, both of my parents are in the medical profession. They complain about this all the time, but I, I saw it viscerally. I, I watched over the weekend, this, this old documentary, I think it's from like 10 years ago called Code Black about an emergency mm -hmm. room in Los Angeles. And in an interesting way, they went from, it was this old antiquated emergency room that for reasons that, I, that they didn't fully un explain in the documentary was like exempt from a lot of these regulations that require all this paperwork. But then they were forced because of earthquake code to build a new facility. And for some reason that now put them into the 21st century in terms of paperwork. And they interview all these doctors who are just like, so much of my day is paperwork, like all day yeah. is paperwork. Uh, and I don't know what the, that, there's like a regulatory and I don't know what the answer there is, but I feel for the, the people in medicine because to a person, doctors I know, whether it's paper or digital, feel overwhelmed by the requirements in a way that right. I don't feel like, yeah, teachers listening will say they have paperwork. I know what your paperwork is. I ran schools. It is nothing remotely similar to what these doctors are dealing with. Right. Well, insurance alone adds a huge layer right. um, to what doctors have to do. But again, both of these professions, right, these are both people-oriented professions. They are communication. They are service. They're helping professions, teachers and doctors. And what that means at its core is human interaction, human contact, and being able to see someone and observe them and get all of those signals that might not be conveyed uh, by the voice alone, but they're sort of full body. Um, and uh, you're losing out if anyone involved in those professions are on screens rather than fully there, fully present. Well, Pamela, this is wonderful. Uh, for folks who want to follow your work, uh, they can go to the New York Times uh, opinion pages. Obviously, anywhere else you want to point people? Um, I have a website for my books, which is PamelaPaul.com. Uh, my most recent book, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet, and also a picture book for children, which is another passion of mine. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Remember to rate, review, subscribe. Uh, our voicemail is 321-200-0570, 321-200-0570. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.